Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of The Fix. I'm Angel Borelli. In this episode of my off-season series, my guest coach is Steve Harrow, associate head coach at Morrow Bay High School in the Central Coast of California. Steve has been a longtime listener and has always been a source of great questions, and I'm really happy to have him here with me today. Hi, Steve. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks, Angel, for having me. It's nice to be by The Fix. Yes, well, I appreciate it. You've always sent such great questions in, and I love the last few you've sent in. So here you are. I want to hear it in person. Great. 99% of all the pitchers basically in their offseason right now. So maybe you could tell us or tell me and the rest of the listeners, what does an offseason look like in general? Yes. Well, what you're really asking is what does a cycling of a pitcher's career look like throughout the year. And when you come up into what's called the off season, what does that actually mean? And what does it actually entail? And I've seen a lot of different definitions of the cycles, you know, where people call this one season and then they call off season right before the pitcher goes back. I mean, there's many ways to define this, but First of all, when we're talking about a pitcher, we're talking about two things. We're talking about the fact that he's throwing and pitching and that when he's done throwing and pitching for his baseball season, whenever that season ends, then he immediately goes into off season and off season. Then what that actually means for a pitcher, and this is the definition that everyone should hold true, is that off season is when the pitcher is not throwing, he is not pitching, and he is training in the gym to recover and restore and build to produce better performance in the upcoming season. And what happens after off-season is there's going to be a time where you're going to be in a series of weeks, and I'll talk about how to schedule this in a second, but after he's gone through this thing, he will start throwing flat ground and then he'll start pitching and getting ready for his reporting, whether it's to the high school field or the minor league field or the college field. And once he picks up a ball and starts throwing, that's what I call preseason. Preseason is not January. That's preseason, but it's late preseason. Preseason is when what you've been doing the offseason comes to an end. So whenever a pitcher is lifting weights in the gym, and he should be lifting weights all year round, and just so the listeners know, you're talking to someone who's also a strength coach. So when you talk to a strength coach, you know, our my pitchers are training all year round. So you're going to hear me say, so my guys are training all year round. When they're in season and they're throwing, they're training is to make sure they don't get injured, to make sure we're restoring all the tissue integrity that comes from, you know, what happens in pitching. But when they're in the off season, we don't have to worry about, oh, he's making a start tomorrow. Oh, he's got practice next week. Or, oh, he's got a showcase or he's pitching in three weeks. Whenever a pitcher is having to revolve everything else he does around his commitment to pitching, when he has to do that, then he's not in any kind of a quote unquote off season. He's in season. But in the off season, he gets to do what his body needs because he doesn't have to answer to anyone else. Does that make sense, Steve? Yeah. So this is a, a rest and recovery type of period, correct? Yes. And I don't call it well, here's here so here's the way we do it. And let's talk about it right now. So let's just back up a few months. And I will use many of my pitchers as examples. So I had pitchers coming in to what would be a late uh, not late off season, but pitchers start their off season anywhere from August to September to October, depending on if they're high school and play travel ball. And the first thing that happens, and this should happen, and I don't care if you're a, you know, I'm lucky because I work one-on-one with pitchers, but the first thing is you ask the pitcher, how much rest do you want where you're doing nothing? And I mean nothing. Kicking back, couch potato, chilling. What does your brain need right now? And what I'm really asking him, what does his nervous system need right now just to chill? He just needs to chill because their schedule is so full. 
And most of my pitchers, particularly my professional guys who are in the minor leagues, they never say more than three weeks. Usually it's two weeks. And somewhere around day 13, day 12, day 11, they'll say, hey, Angel, when are we going to get started? They want to chill, but they don't want to chill too much because what their next step is, is something they love, which is going in and kicking butt in the gym. So I don't call it rest and recovery. I call that three weeks, like, you know, go ahead and take what you need just so your nervous system rests, but they can't recover just sitting there. Their nervous system is recovering from being constantly bombarded with the need to perform. And then, of course, the mental aspect and emotional aspect that goes with that. But the off-season is not rest and recovery. The off-season is building. So they have a little tiny increment at the beginning where kick back, do nothing. And I mean do nothing. And they go, well, can I, you know, do, I say, is it fun for you? Yeah. Okay. And as long as it's not involving like, oh, I'm going to go out and shoot baskets and play basketball. That's not rest. Now I'm talking about serious pitchers because I only work with serious pitchers. Pitchers who, when they leave their pitching behind, their intent immediately flying home is that they show up better in the spring. That pitcher who is committed like that is going to think differently about what he does. So let's take the guy who he's in September, says, oh, I need two weeks, three weeks. He takes, let's say he takes three weeks. Cool. You done? You ready? Cool. Now with the fun starts. So they go into serious off-season training. We don't have to worry about, oh, we can't get their chest sore. We can't get their biceps sore. We can't do this because they're pitching. No, you start with one, creating a program that addresses all, and I'm talking just about the strength program now. You create a program that addresses all the mechanical needs that they showed that they needed from their last performance. You know, I always have last season video. And from that video, I know what I'm going to do with them when they start throwing again. But also there may be weaknesses I see in their body. And so I'm going to include that. So if someone's got a very shaky front leg, let's say they keep sinking into it. Well, I know I'm going to give them a type of lunge where they have to stop at that exact height that I need for them to get. And they're going to know why they're doing that. It's part of the mechanics. So Strength training programs continues to work on mechanics and weaknesses and also just lets them get big and strong. And so that's what they start to do. And how long that season's going to end or last is based on something that you've already done, which I didn't mention, which is when you have that conversation with them and you say, hey, how many weeks do you need to chill? Your next question is, and you've got a calendar in front of you, when do you need to report? So my high school guys are now telling me they have scrimmages in February. Okay, late February, the games start in March. My minor league guys, they report in March. And my college guys, similar to the high school, they start going in February. So you look at when they need to be ready. And I always want my guys to be 60% there when they turn themselves over to their coaches. A lot of coaches really have the month before games They have very systematic programs. They help build the pitch counts really well. And then there's some that don't. So what I do is I say, you know what? Let's go ahead and make sure you're covered no matter what the situation is. And then you could take advantage of that month to really fine tune things. So now you've got a calendar. You have to reverse engineer it. And if your guy who said, oh, I want three weeks, if that brings you to like, Let's say he doesn't start off-season training till the third week of September. Well, then you can go, okay, so he needs two weeks of flat ground. He's going to need blah, blah, blah for interval. And then you start counting the weeks back. And then you go, okay, he can get eight solid weeks in here of strength training. So that's how you create the whole calendar. And that's when you start with that training program that has no worrying about his arm, really building everything. And, you know, when the pitcher's in there doing both sides at one time, he's getting great recovery in the muscles. He's also getting great rebuilding. And he's also kind of, you know, rebalancing his body from being a one-sided skill. And that is always what you want your first part of your program to look like. So now does that make sense getting the guy out of the gate and then into the gym? 
It does. And I think you ran into something that's very important that you and I talk about is, and that's definitions and terminology. So rest would be more like chilling. Yes. And instead of recovery, it's actually building. Yeah. And you're recovering, you know, the first part of training, you are recovering the body. I mean, my guys recover during the season. You see, I'm a proponent of dissipating the stress in the body, dissipating the fatigue, dissipating the damage to the tissues as you go on. So as you know, my first pitch strike program has a recovery program built into it. Now, why do I have that? Because if the pitcher doesn't immediately restore the damage that was done or create a good way of recovering in the rear of his shoulder right after he pitches, every time he goes to the mound, he's going with a diminished body. If he can restore it each time, he has the chance of keeping it at least where it was. Then my pitchers who work with me, we're in the gym and then we're taking that muscle and we're definitely not only really rebuilding it from anything it lost, but possibly even moving it ahead. Because like the rear delt, it takes a beating. You don't have to worry too much about it. So you know when he's pitching next, you know when he pitched last, you recover that thing. And my guys stay in pretty decent shoulder health because of doing that sort of thing. So the recovery from pitching should happen consistently. The recovery from the season should be built into the training program. So the only time I really use the word recovery, Steve, is when they're actually pitching and throwing. So that's in season. Yes. He's recovering. Mm -hmm. He's recovering from his pitching bout. Mm -hmm. on his rest days. And what's he doing when he recovers? Is he just sitting there twiddling his thumbs? No, he's actually doing active recovery things because the muscle tissue has gone through a situation where it needs to recover and it's going to recover, but how well it recovers and how fast it recovers based on what you do during the recovery cycle. So as you know, as through the podcast, when people talk about pitch counts and let's pull them to preserve his arm and this and that. No, if you're a pitching coach and your guy's at 90 and he's kicking it and and you want to keep him in because, you know, he just if he can get this last these last three guys out, it's going to be awesome. And he's doing well. Let him stay in, but give him the proper recovery. I'm more of a fan of giving the proper recovery for the volume of the outing than I am at trying to control the outing. Because when you're trying to control the outing, you're not really doing anything that's going to make a difference. But what you do in between bouts. And, you know, I just read an interesting article. And I know it's going to sound funny because I've been saying this for years, quote unquote, some teams are starting to look at the fatigue factor and they're wondering if maybe their pitchers should have more recovery. And I laugh to myself because, you know, for people who work in sports science, this is just sort of a given. And it's funny how people are late to wake up to it, but at least they're looking at it. So recovery is recovery from the bout you just performed. When you're in the gym, you have your off days, but that's because you're getting you're getting your muscles ready for the next workout. And they're doing pretty hefty workouts during the off season. And they're training generally. And then as the, as the off season goes on, you can bring in even more specific stuff. But the training should be serious. And it's not like one or two days a week. It's like the way that people who lift weights train, which is that we do one body part or two body parts at a time, and then you take a day off and then you recycle. And that's how the pitcher actually, quote unquote, repairs his body. He actually builds it. And then you know that when he starts to throw, he's bringing a different body to that throwing bout than he had when he left the season. Is that all connecting? That makes great sense. And one of the things that maybe you could speak to real quickly here is that you have quite a few different pitchers that you work with at different levels. Obviously, their building in their offseason will be very specific to each one of them, correct? Specific to each one in terms of the exercise choices, but not specific in the sense every one of them has a leg day, every one of them has a back day, 
every one of them has a chest and shoulders day and every one of them has an arms day. And that's the way I love my guys to train. And they love training that way too, because I can cycle that. And by giving arms on one day and giving them plenty of rest, those arms get used again when they're doing chest, they get used again when they're doing backs, you're hitting them almost four times and the arms are very important to health. So it's very much the same in the programming in the sense that these are the body parts they're doing. Now, where that might change is if I've got a guy coming off of Tommy John or some type of surgery or he's in a different health thing. But let's talk about healthy guys. Let's say if you were looking at your entire squad and you would say, hey, you know, what should they be doing? But let's say pitcher A had anterior shoulder surgery last year and he's always complaining about discomfort. So on his chest day, that chest exercise choice might be completely different than your biggest pitcher who's, you know, he's a beast and he's, he wants to get bigger and he's got plenty of room for it and he lifts weights and you're going to give him a normal chest workout. So you're not going to modify things. So you make modifications based on the health of the pitcher. And then you also make modifications if there is, let's say, something going on in his mechanics that tell you, hmm, you know what? He's so bent over in the front when he pitches that I actually don't want him training chest for the first month. I'm only going to have him train the back to see if I can relieve some of that stress on the front. Then I'm going to add the chest back in. So let's say it's something in his mechanics that you see is so extreme that it makes you go, you know what? That's just the way I'm going to skip that around a little bit. Also, too, like I said, it's very important, and I think all high school coaches should do this. On that last game of the season, you know, if you guys could have somebody filming your pitchers, you know, maybe in the last month, look at the rotation during games and say, okay, by the end of this month, we'll have, you know, and and all you have to do is get four pitches. I mean, I think when people talk about filming, they go, they're going to film the whole game or the whole inning. (laughs) And when people want to send me stuff, I say, please, I only need one fastball from four different views. And if you only have one view, just send me that one fastball, but don't send me, you know, five views of the same thing. Now, I can't work from one view, but if you say to yourself, I want to see what this guy's doing at the end, and you don't even have to critique it in the sense of trying to make the correction, but you look at it and you say, you know what, this guy's legs are weak. And if you have a strength coach, you can have him look at it and say, hey, this guy doesn't, can't even get his arms up to 90 degrees, or this guy's leg is sinking. You don't have to be a mechanics expert or a structural expert to be able to see that a pitcher needs. It's what you intuitively say, you know what, he just he, he just isn't using his lower body or he's, he's just slumping over, or he's sinking. And then you, you convert that into an exercise. And that's the way you make it personalized. So you're personalizing for the needs. You're personalizing if there's a limitation due to an injury. But other than that, every human being has the same number of body parts and we all need to be training them. Makes great sense. Of the different angles that you do film, are there any one or two that are more important than the others of the four? Absolutely not. Because here's the thing, the purpose of filming, and I'm I'm so glad you're asking this question because for someone who does what I do, I cringed 20 years ago when everybody started filming and I, it's sort of scary. It's like, you know, what are they going to do with this film? Cause I'm always thinking of the picture. The film should provide some information that provides some guidance and ends up in a solution that ends up making a change in an adjustment in something with the picture that makes sense for him. Unless you go from that point A to the end in a systematic way, you're not going to, at the end, it's going to be a nightmare. And what we don't want are more pitchers running around with information that's going to give them nightmares and not corrections. So whenever you're looking at film with that in mind, you have to see, and, and you guys are great. You can walk up to a pitcher throwing a pitch and go, oh, look, his release point's weird. Oh, he dropped his arm. I mean, you see amazing things and you use that. You know, when I'm watching a pitcher, I always use my naked eye first. 
So first of all, when he's throwing flat ground before he throws his pen, I'm like, okay, I already see things. So you see that thing and then you get him on the mound and from each view, you look at that thing. Now you're looking at other things too, but always start with what you know. When you look at that thing from four different views, you get to see it at how it looks from four different sides. And then your job is to figure, why is he doing that thing? And the why has nothing to do with the thing you're looking at. So from four different views, you're looking at what does he do right before that? Right before it. What's the movement that moves into that movement? So then you look from four different sides at that moment before the thing you saw. And when you look at something from one side, your brain will go, oh, then you look at it from the other side and you go, whoa. And then you look at it from the other and you go, okay, I get it. My favorite view that I see the most on is when I'm standing at the side of the pitcher, but on his backside where I'm not seeing his face. I love that because there's something so telling when you look at a f- movement that you don't have a face to it. It just has some sort of something to it. It's one of my favorite views to look at, and people think it's unimportant, but every view shows it to you in a different way. And then if, let's say that didn't give you the answer, or let's say it did give you the answer, and you say, oh, so that's what I saw, but oh, he's really messing up here on that movement before it, but what are you going to do next? Well, what's he doing right before that movement? Before you know it, I can guarantee you, you have backed yourself up and you found out that his problem starts when he comes out of the glove and you can go, yay, at least I don't have to work with them like at the release point or this or that. So you get to confirm it. And your job is to see and confirm, try to find where it's caused. Look at that again, see and confirm, try to find what causes that, see and confirm, try to find what causes that. And then you'll be right to the center. And then when you go to work, you can work systematically because unless you solve the cause of whatever's creating a problem, you're never going to get to the solution. You'll just cause other problems and it will help you work better. And it's, you know, you've done your due diligence with making sure that this pitcher isn't, you're not just, you know, throwing him to the wolves with his mechanics. So all four views are critical so that you can look at each moment. Now, how to use the video and how to stop it is, I think, the thing that coaches don't understand. You're like, okay, I'm playing video. I got to stop it. When you get that second view, you have to stop it in the exact same place. But also, too, all the all the things we talk about as analysts, we're all talking about the same exact spot in video. I don't stop my video anywhere different where Dr. Fleissig stops his video because that's the field I work in. So if I say, what does he look like at stride foot contact on all four views? You have to know well, what's stride foot contact. Well, it's when the front foot makes contact with the ground. So I have people send me video and say, he's in stride foot contact. I go, "Um, what was the frame before this? He was on his heel or on his ball of his foot. Well, what's the frame before this? Oh, he's on his heel. Well, stride foot contact is when his heel touched down. It's when the foot makes the touching down with the ground because then the next phase starts. And when we look at where that is, where that stride foot contact is, then we bounce and look at where the arm is at. And that's when everything begins. So knowing the phases of pitching, and you know, this is stuff that, you know, when you're in graduate school and you're learning how to analyze in sports, we have to define phases, we have to define actions, and you have to know how to market, and then you look at it. If you if you can't get a consistent kind of way to view things, you're going to have trouble looking at video. But I think a lot of people, that's why I love your question, they think they're looking at video, but they're really not looking at video. They might be, well, they might be looking at it, but not seeing it, because unless you get a consistent, I mean, if you sent me video and you were standing over my shoulder, You'd see me watch one at real time, and then you'd see me immediately stop at a, at a place. And then I would open his second view, and I would just fast forward and stop at a certain place. I don't need to 
you know, I watch it real time, just one time. So I get a sense, you know, is he, does he fall after his pitch or whatever? But basically I need to then look at it in distinct definitions of time. Does that make sense too? Yeah. So again, that's the importance of understanding the terminology. Yes. That's, I think that's so important when you're communicating with us coaches and anyone we're trying to communicate with our pitchers. Yes. So terminology is important. Very important. No, it's very important. And I think that, yeah, and I don't think enough coaches ask these questions. And I think that coaches, I love helping coaches because, first of all, you're all trying to get your guys ready for what they're facing in college, which is, you know, high technology and everything else, if it's not already happening at the high school level, and to get them there and to be making adjustments and things that are really productive for them, I think is critical for the coach themselves, the high school coach, to have as much much information as possible and how to really look at a pitcher, diagnose him, and kind of help him. So, Steve, you know, when you were talking about the off-season, were you having any issues or questions about, you know, getting the pitchers from the off-season, or were you just interested in that cycling into the off-season? Actually, I wanted to, if we have a little time here, is to delve into what is not part of the off-season. In other words, at the prep level, we've got guys that are playing, you know, sports right now when they should Mm -hmm. be or should be their off-season. So could you talk a little bit, but the other day we talked a little bit about how basketball might change the arm physiology as opposed to the baseball arm. So if you could talk a little bit about that, that'd be great. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because this to me is a labeling thing. And this is what I say. Don't say you're in off-season if you are Not in the gym, building your body, so you show up at spring training better. If you're playing basketball, you are not in off-season. If you're playing football, you are not in off-season. If you're wrestling, you are not in off-season. Because you are, one, not allowing your body to rebuild itself from the season you have, off-season is about preparation for the next season. And depending on the sport you pick, you could not only be just not using your off-season, which is your choice, by the way, I tell pitchers this. If a pitcher decides he does not want to use his off-season to prepare for his spring season, then he needs to say that to himself and know it and accept the consequences. When pitchers come to me, I just give it to them straight. And in fact, somebody didn't believe me, so I had one of my best pitchers call him. And this is what the answer was, because I was standing there. The guy said, I want to play basketball this off season, and I don't know what to do. I love basketball. I'm really good at it. And I don't know how to make the decision. And the pitcher said this, if you want to show up in the spring better than you were the year before, then train in the off season. If you don't care about doing that, then do whatever you want in the off season. And that was his exact answer. And by the way, the kid went on to play basketball, which ended his career because of a serious injury in his wrist. So now he plays neither basketball or baseball. So that was the bad news about that decision. That was many, many, many years ago, and it's a sad thing. But always know that when you're going outside and doing other things, there's always consequences. But, you know, in life, you know, my job isn't to take kids and try to make them think like I do. My job is to educate them to make their own decisions. So here's the thing about training, and here's the thing about this off-season sports playing, and then we'll get into the basketball. So when we talked about the off-season, and, and I said they need to go in the gym and they train the body parts. So you picture guys are in the gym, they're lifting weights, they're getting big, they stand up, you see them, they're more muscular. Well, that's what's happening on the outside. But with everything they're doing, and even the style with which they do that, they're changing and should be changing and improving the architecture of the inside of the muscle to match the exact needs of the kind of skill they're in. So for example, my guys in off season, they're doing a specific type of cardio. They're doing specific strength training. And this is all to not just make them look good, feel good, be bigger, 
have more muscles to protect them from injuries, but also I'm making sure that we keep up the system on the inside of the muscle that's called the ATPPC system, which is a very specific energy pathway that pitchers use, hitters use, golfers use. Any performance that lasts less than 20 seconds, they use it. So when your guy hits an infield home run, he just used that system to get to the plate. When he hits a double, he used that system. When the hitter hits one bomb, he used that system. When a pitcher throws a pitch, he uses that system. So everything you're doing in the offseason is to train that and make sure you keep improving it because that system's so delicate. It's sort of like a garage that has room for a million Volkswagens, but only as a room for two Lamborghinis. So it's very protective and it doesn't make room for those Lamborghinis unless you say the brain says, Hey, we need you to have those high powered fibers. So what we do is we continue training those systems to make sure that that athlete has that availability to keep performing at that high level from that energy pathway. So let's take the pitcher. He throws hard He goes into off-season training, and he decides, I want to be a basketball player. So he's running up and down the court, and within one week of training out of breath and training in a way that has nothing to do with anything he does on the field, his insides go, whoa, he's training without oxygen, so he's creating a lot of lactic acid. We got to lay down streets and sidewalks and all kinds of exit ways to get rid of that lactic acid. So it immediately moves out the Lamborghini that he's got in there. It pushes the other one to the side, moves in a hundred Volkswagens, starts laying down little sidewalks and things. And the next thing you know, it the guy's golden. He's not getting out of breath as fast. He's like, you know, not getting sick after he trains. And he's like, God, I'm really getting in shape from this. Yes, and he is getting in shape. But he has not done anything for the physiology. In fact, he's changed the physiology. So now let's take it on a different level. So here's a pitcher who's been using his arm and the, uh, the muscles on the arm that get the most fatigued after, let's say, if I measure the strength of a muscle when he, before he goes on and then when he comes off the field, his anterior deltoid, the muscle in the front, is going to be trashed at the end of that pitching bout. Well, have you ever seen what the deltoids on basketball players look like? They're like round and huge because picture shooting a basket. The basket is always shot from upper high shoulder level. The anterior deltoid is holding that trajectory up, except for a dunk, I guess. But that shoulder takes a beating. So is that pitcher, quote unquote, resting his shoulder? No. Is he building it? No, because you can't build something that starts out fatigued. So could he be endangering it? Yes. And by the way, if he's doing all of this, When does he go in the gym to actually train, which is what every athlete should be doing in his, the off season of his skill, just because the training itself has to like get his muscles back together from the wear and tear of the season, even if he doesn't care about improving. So now you've got, when do you do? So what I tell my guys, nope, you either are a pitcher in off season, or if you're going to play basketball, go play basketball and don't be not committed to your basketball coach. Once you say, I'm, I'm here with you, you don't like skip out on this, skip out on that. You have to be 100% in. So people don't get that. So they just think, they think the outer thing that they see, he's having fun running up and down. But as a professional strength coach and sports scientist, when I look at an athlete doing something, I'm looking at what his cells are doing, what his joints are doing, what his muscles are doing, what his physiology is doing, every single thing. So it's way more than just visual. So it's complicated. So what you want to know is you as a coach, which guys didn't have a good off season in the sense of what I would, would have wanted them to have, which is to really be improved when they show up here. And then which guys did. And then you can observe and see what do you see. And you know, basketball runs into baseball, doesn't it? 
It sure does. Yeah. So have you got guys dragging butt for the first few weeks when they return to baseball? Sure do. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's really a rough thing. And I've been there with having to deal with this, especially in high school, because they don't think this deeply about it. But I'll tell you when they do think about it, they show up that season. And if you've got a, a junior I mean, somebody going into their junior year who's on track for a scholarship and all of a sudden he decides to play basketball and it's new and then he ends up, you know, not performing well, he'll make a different decision in the following off season. And this is an important thing, Steve, when we talked about the off season and we talked about that first interview when you're asking how much time do they need to chill. Right. You are already evaluating his performance, but you're also trying to look at what's what's your future here? And if the kid says, I want to play college D1 baseball, and another guy says, oh, I don't care. I'm not that good. I'm just going to play just for fun in the rest of the year. All these things you know, are part of how you help guide the player because if a pitcher is serious, you know, I deal with the creme de la creme, so I'm lucky. So a lot of them make the decisions that are, I've got to get better. They're worried about their scholarships. They're worried about their job, and they have a different motivation. Unfortunately, in high at high school levels, they don't have that sort of big picture sense. But it's always interesting as a coach, I think, to observe because it helps you make better decisions for the team in the upcoming season. Makes great sense. Yeah. So when they should be starting flat ground throwing and getting ready for bullpen, so when they show up in February, their arms aren't ready. But the guys who did a normal off season, they've gone through flat ground. Now, do you have an organized flat ground throwing with your guys, or do you leave that to them until they show up, or how does that work for your school? No, we ha- we have it organized. One thing that, real quickly, if I have a guy who is playing basketball, and I've got, I think I have at least two pitchers that are, when they show up on the field, say in January or February. Would we treat them differently and train them differently to get them mm-hmm. ready for the in season? I know that's kind of an open question. No, it's a great question. It's a great so we, question. They they might be on a on a different track. Well, first of all, they haven't picked up a baseball. So here's the thing about playing another sport. And fathers call me and ask me these questions, and I have to say this to him. He, they say, "Well, why can't?" Okay, so he's supposed to start flat ground throwing. You know, a lot of my high school guys, they're, they're going to start flat ground throwing December 20th or, you know, in the next week or two, they're flat ground for two weeks and then they start pitching and they go, oh, OK, well, my son's playing basketball. He can be on that schedule, too. Right. And I go, OK, so when is it if he has to flat ground throw three or four times a week, let's say he's at 45 feet. When is it exactly that he would do this? And he goes, well, let's see. He's got basketball practice every day after school. And then he's got uh, games on Friday and Saturday. And Oh, he could do it on Sunday. And I go, well, number one, it's only one day. So it's not going to do anything anyway. Number two, your son needs to recover from his basketball. He needs that day to rest. Okay, so if I go along with, yeah, okay, so yeah, you want to do two things at one time? So when's he going to do it? The the jaws drop because there is no answer to that. And that's the problem. It's not that we hate this or we hate that. It's like you cannot train for two things simultaneously and not have something suffer. So I would never want to put that pitcher's arm at risk. So your guys are going to come to you and go, when should I flat ground throw? Well, isn't the last two months of their program pretty hefty with basketball? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Tournament. And listen, basketball is the most draining sport and it changes the physiology quicker than anything else because it's so anaerobic, meaning they're out of breath training. Mm-hmm. That what you've got are guys that need the rest that they're getting in season. Plus, you can't take away from their performance with their basketball coaches. It's just like you wouldn't want your basketball coach to come on the field and grab your guy at the end of the practice and say, oh, good, I'm glad you're done. Come with me and let's go shoot baskets. <laughs> yeah, you see, it's the same thing. I try yeah. to tell the kids, you got to respect the coach and the sport that you've committed to. 
I agree. So what you've got are guys showing up and hopefully they haven't done flat ground yet and they haven't done pitching yet. So depending on if they go into is, isn't there a difference into whether they go into tournaments? So if they're not in tournaments, they're free the middle of February. If they are in tournaments, they're actually not free till the middle of March. Is that a little bit earlier? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we'll get them, we'll get them probably the first part of February. Yeah. Well, your for your first part of February, guys. As soon as the first guys come in, they still have to honor the rules, which is a guy has to do flat ground before he gets on the mound, and he's got to do systematically forty-five feet for the first week, changing the volume between fifty and seventy-five throws. Within probably seven days, you have him to sixty feet, and that's where the magic starts. And he has to be able to go 60 feet, you know, 50 throws at 60 feet, three, four times a week. Then he goes to 75 throws, three, four times a week. When he's done all that and you've utilized that 60 foot flat time to work on some of the mechanics that you saw from the last season, or even if you didn't see it, let's say you're just becoming enlightened right now at this second when you're hearing this podcast, what I love that coaches, don't worry about what you saw. Focus on what you're seeing. So if you hear this and you go, whoa, don't think, oh no, we got a flat ground and then go, to, we got to get him to pitching. No, you have more latitude with changing a pitcher's mechanics when he's working flat ground. Now, some things can't be fixed flat ground if it's a stride length issue or this or that. But if a guy's coming out of the glove in a funky way, or he's slumping over, or his front leg is sinking, you could be working on that during those two to three weeks where he's at 60 feet, working on the mechanics and getting his arm in shape. You cannot rush the flat ground phase because if you rush the flat ground phase and your pitcher gets injured during the pitching phase, you're going to hate yourself. Always cover your own butt on this. And that's why you follow the rules. And the rules are we look at conditioning rules. I mean, these are actually throwing programs that are that were created by medical institutions and ASMI and physical therapy, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of them have made adjustments to them. And I, of course, started following them to the letter. But I'll tell you something. When all the pitchers I've worked with, and I have pitchers now I've worked with for 12 years. I introduced them back into pitching every year. They were little kids, and now they're big, big men. And you know what? When it's time to get on the mound, they know it. When it's not time, they know it. In fact, I'll say, hey, so how's your arm feeling? Feeling good. Can you go to 75 throws? No, let me have one more session at 50 throws. When you ask a question, be ready for what the answer means. And when a pitcher says, um, no, I don't think so. Let's stay at 50 today. Then you know that arm is still getting conditioned. And then the next time you make them do 50 again. And then you move them to 75. So the protocol usually is, and I'll talk about the 60, is that you're going to go at least three or four times at two sets of 25 at 60, probably three to four times. And you got to get them to 60 because 60 is where the magic happens. At 45, you're seeing weird mechanics and, you know, you can't really look at our mechanics, but you're seeing general flow of the body. And then after they've thrown 50 throws a bunch of times, then you move them to 75 a bunch of times. And that's probably four times. And when they've done that, you know that you've done your job. And when they're at the 45 foot thing, you start there too. You go maybe two by 25. I go two by 25 at 45, probably only twice and maybe three times depending on the pitcher. But I get them to three by 25 at 45 at least three times because I want to make sure he's got the volume of the movement of the shoulder before I get him to 60. But my job in my head is get him out of 45 as fast as I can because they look funny at 45. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? They just don't look right. But the shoulder needs to go through the rotation. The elbow needs to go through the rotation. So what I use 45 for are drills partial throwing drills. I have the, the partner at 45 feet and I have him throw from this position, that one. I, I have fun at 45 just so I know I'm turning over that shoulder and extending that elbow 
and the wrist, et cetera. And then when they get to 60, then we can start really putting it all together. So that whole sequence, what, what did I say, Steve? What would take about three weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yep. So your pitcher's coming on February 1st. So here's the thing. Then they'll start pitching. And of course, you start a pitcher at 20 pitches. And these guys, they'd have to start probably at 15. Building the pitch count during this, these throwing programs, which of course your guys should be doing before they show up to you. They can't be ready. You can't do all this in a month. So my guys are building their pitch count all through, let's say, January, end of December. During that pitch count thing, they're rotating the shoulder and the elbow. They're getting the downhill trajectory. They're working on their mechanics. But also they're going deep enough to where they can actually really feel and work on their different pitches, which really you don't start doing until 25 or 30. So now you've got a reason why you're building the pitch count, not just to build the pitch count, but so they can experience early pitches to late pitches. So they start their bullpen and they're doing great. And by the time they're at 25, they're a mess. Then the next time they're okay, they're good till 30. These are where all these issues come up. You don't want to be finding that out one week before the season in March with these guys who are starting late. So they would be having literally a late start, in my opinion. You couldn't even, in my opinion, say, okay, well, they've thrown three pens at 25 pitches. Can I put them in for an inning? Well, The thing I just said is when a pitcher's building his pitch count, he's building his experience with all his pitches, his mechanics, his depth for that season. If he hasn't gone through that, let alone face hitters, even though his pitch count's up to 30, do you see what I'm saying? You're putting in someone inexperienced. So if you say, well, you know, I kind of like that idea. How could I make that work? Well, you'd have to start to think about how could I create where he wouldn't be that wet behind the ears. So the building of the pitch count through the preseason stage, which begins the moment they pick up a ball, all those weeks are not just providing a satisfaction to numbers that we want to see and a satisfaction to conditioning we want to see. The throwing is messaging back to the pitcher, who's messaging back to his hand, who's messaging to his pitches, who's taking on this whole thing he's going to have happening in the upcoming season. Now, what I worry about with your late start, guys, is do any of us like to be late for an appointment or an important meeting? No. I mean, don't you feel completely like a mess when you show up late to something? you always feel like you're rushing. And my biggest concern would be that you calm these guys down and say, listen, you showed up late because you made a decision. That's your decision. But here's the consequences. And you're going to need to calm down through this phase. And I don't want to see anybody freaking out about this. Because if they're feeling like the faster they go on this day and the more they get done on this day, it's going to make the time frame last longer. In fact, I would sit down and lay out a calendar and figure out how you're going to handle this so that you can sit down with them. Pitchers just need information. And if you say, listen, sorry to tell you this, but you're going to have to flat ground here, pitch, and you might be ready to reenter at the end of March. I mean, it's a nightmare for a coach, I know, but what else are you going to do if you start him too soon? and he gets injured, that's going to be a worse situation for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So basically, we have to reverse engineer again. When a guy picks up a baseball, if it is in February, then we have to re- you know, reverse through the calendar and say, okay, you have to go through these various phases of flat ground work. And so you're projected to be able to start, you know, March 10th. Yes. Whatever that date is. Yes. So I love you're asking these personal questions for you because I would love nothing more than for you to be able to go go back to the table and actually work out some of the situations. So here's the thing you don't want to do. Do not rush the flat ground arm preparation. And when they start throwing their bullpen, have them throw their first bullpen at a number that you feel is conservative. It should never be more than 20. It could be 15. But when they get to 15, you ask them, hey, how many more can you throw? If that kid says 15, you know, don't listen to them anymore. But I always ask the question because 15 would be way too many to start. But 
if he says mm, five more, then you know he's being honest. And then also, too, you know you might be able to go to 20 that day. And if you trust the kid and he's somebody that you know knows his body, and also he threw 15 great pitches and you go to talk to the catcher, then you know what? Let him start go to 20. So where you can manipulate is when you get to the numbers. But here's where the deal is. You're careful in the first few. Then when they start to get to 25, they sometimes move through 25, 30, and 35 fairly quickly. But remember, 40 is another magic number. At 40, things start to break down. So you want to start watching pitchers' bullpens and talking to your catchers and saying, and, you know, have a meeting with your catchers and saying, these guys are on late starts, and I don't want anybody rushing, and I want to know, were they as good at the beginning of their pen? as they were at the end, were they better, worse, whatever, and have the catchers learn how to come to you and say, hey, he started out good and he burnt out at 28, and he's done that twice, okay, and he's supposed to be at 40. You may want to back him up. Start to use feedback to investigate if you're making the right decisions. That's how you keep yourself out of hot water, and that's how you keep your pitcher's arms healthy because you want their feedback, but the pitching always tells the story. And that's the way you would handle some of these, you know, tricky situations. Great. Good stuff. Yeah. And then for next year, you know, you could start thinking, hey, you know what? I want to see how many of my guys, I want my guys to start training in October 1st. You know, I want them in a gym. And then they all start here. And then, you know, I mean, and especially the guys that have some serious things coming up. So it's a way to start planning right now for next year at this time. So if anybody right now is going, whoa, my guys haven't even been in the gym yet. We thought this was the beginning right now. And really and truly to be ready for February 22nd, which is when most of my guys have, have a scrimmage or something going on, all of them are going to be pitching probably last week of December, first week of January. Because they're going to flat ground around 20th, you know, if you reverse engineer it. And, of course, during that February, you can control innings, but, you know, pitch counts. But it's great to get this information and then start thinking about it for the next season. Sounds good, Angel. I appreciate it. It's an important time of the year. Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Steve. And, Steve, you had another great question that I want to save for the next part of this wonderful session that we've had and it'll give you a chance to even ask more questions so i'd love to have you on for the next podcast so we could talk about some of the specific stuff to throwing that you had some interest in talking about how does that sound that sounds great i'd I'd really appreciate it i had a good time that's awesome well thank you so much for being my guest today and for more information about me please visit my website at www.gymscience.com and please follow angel borelli pitching on facebook and instagram thanks for listening everyone